Hi, this is Steve. There have been 11 presidents since I was born, and yet in all that time there was only one queen. Elizabeth II was more than just a public figure. She was the enduring symbol of a national consistency, a woman who seemed to transcend popular trends, social upheaval, and partisan politics. Her dedication to duty and country seemed above reproach, but there was one moment in 1997 when she found herself unexpectedly at odds with the nation she had dedicated her life to. The Queen, directed by Stephen Frears and starring Helen Mirren and Michael Sheen, documents in stark detail the tumultuous days surrounding the unexpected death of Princess Diana and the radical readjustment it forced on the royal family. This is a fascinating film, and we are honored to be joined in our discussion by senior writer of the National Review and author of the Conservatarian Manifesto, Charles C.W. Cook. So, if you haven't seen this incredible film, I highly recommend a royal visit to our webpage, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream The Queen, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Queen Elizabeth and Tony Blair are both real-life leaders portrayed on film, and if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss the greatest depictions of real-life leaders in the history of cinema. So, that's a discussion of leaders on Patreon and the Queen with special guest Charles C.W. Cook, this Friday on The Cinephiles. This is a family funeral, Mr. Blair, not a fairground attraction. No, if there's nothing else, I must get on. The children have to be looked after. Of course. <clears throat> well, goodbye, you mentioned. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and a self-professed lover of the monarchy <laughs> and obsessed with this movie and very glad that we are tackling this movie as i suggested this movie after the passing of queen elizabeth in which i sat and watched bbc america for about six hours that morning watching the coverage um i don't defend the monarchy but we do have an obsession with the monarchy here in this household so <laughs> that's what i've heard um and i'm very very thrilled to welcome I've only written about four or five actual fan letters in my lifetime, and our <laughs> guest today is actually the recipient of one of those fan letters. And for those of you who've listened to the show for a while, you've heard me talk about the fact that for the last several years, I've been listening to the National Review podcast called The Editors. And the reason I started doing that was I wanted to get out of my liberal bubble and listen to some smart people that I disagreed with. And the <laughs> person most responsible for keeping me listening to the show, despite how angry it often makes me... <laughs> is our guest today. Charles C.W. Cook is a senior writer at the National Review. He's the author of The Conservatarian Manifesto. He uh, has written for all sorts of uh, papers and newspapers. He's appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher. He has just launched a new podcast called The Charles C.W. Cook Podcast. And I've just always been impressed with both his intellectual honesty and the fact that he really does try to stick to his values, and that is why I'm thrilled to welcome Charles C.W. Cook to The Cinephiles. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, I want to, you know, as, as John said, we're talking 
about the queen. And uh, here's where I wanted to start. I have a question for both of you, and I'm going to give my answer first because it is the most boring of the answers, I think, which is I wanted to know what your relationship to the monarchy has been. Have you obsessively followed it? Have you had strong feelings about it? And I will just say that mine is... I've been aware of it, as you can't help being in our world. It comes up in the news. But I've never been an obsessive follower of the monarchy. I don't, I don't watch all that stuff. I didn't watch the Harry and Meghan interviews on Oprah. I didn't watch the wedding. Wow, I didn't not, get up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't do all of that stuff. So I would like to ask both of you, what is your relationship to the monarchy? Um, why don't we start with you, John? Yeah, I mean, I think from the beginning, I, I've been a bit of an Anglophile since I was a young child. That's what got me into Shakespeare, got me into all things British. Uh, I've visited London more than I've visited any other place in the world. And uh, just for me, there's been an obsession for a very long time. So the monarchy is connected to that. You know, I've, I've been a Liverpool fan since the 90s. And so for me, it's just there's so much wrapped up in in Britain and studying the history of Britain and learning the lineage of the kings. And when you get involved with Shakespeare, it actually leads you to the monarchy in kind of an interesting way. And so I've always been obsessed with that. And then watching the Queen, watching some of the documentaries that have come out, and then watching The Crown recently, which I, thought, which I think is a fascinating series and exploration of the monarchy and seeing what it symbolizes and how it's changed and metamorphosized over the years it's always held a special fascination for me, and it's something I discovered when my girlfriend and I have gotten to get, got together a few years ago. We've been together four years now. She has an obsession with the monarchy very strongly, and um, we, when we visited England this recently in 2019 before COVID, it, we definitely made a point to visit certain places that are connected to the monarchy for us to explore and, um, I don't know, just dive into. So that's always been my thing, and I've read just about you know, a number of things uh, about the monarchy as well to stay abreast of it and stay aware of it and also realize its flaws, both the good things that I enjoy about it and the flaws. <laughs> Charlie, my guess is that your experience with the monarchy is uh, something that's been going on since birth. Yeah, well, it's just the water in which you swim if you're born in England as I was. And it's not particularly frequently or deeply questioned in the UK. Uh, as I believe it's not in Canada as well. It seems to be popular there. It just is. I, I'm in an odd position because I'm a huge fan of the American Constitution. And one of the reasons, in fact, I wanted to live in America is I, I like the political system here. But I wouldn't remove the monarchy from Britain. I wouldn't import the American Constitution into Britain. I don't think it would fit. I mean, the federal system wouldn't fit. Britain's too small. And the changes that it would require would really upend a, a stable system that's been there for, in its current iteration, nearly four centuries. And the monarchy is a part of it. Um, it's quite difficult to work out what you would do. If you got rid of the monarchy, what do you replace it with? Do you elect someone? Maybe you do, but then what happens to the prime minister? Who's more legitimate? And you know that's one reason why a lot of countries with Westminster-style parliamentary systems have kept it. So you know, I, I don't, in a vacuum, think it makes much sense to have one. I can't see any way out of it. Uh, and I also think that the most recent monarch that we had, who was there for 70 years, Queen Elizabeth II, was very good at her job, irrespective of whether or not that job is uh, worthwhile in, in, in one's view. She was good at it, and she was a role model uh, in her execution of it. 
So I'm I'm pro in the British sense, but I I don't yearn for monarchy in the United States or as a general matter. <laughs> uh, it, it's so funny. I really do have no opinion on whether or not the monarchy is a good thing, but I certainly have an opinion on Queen Elizabeth, who is just in my mind, she's just the queen. I mean, you know, my mom tells a story about she was uh, obsessed with the royals, and that when she was in sixth grade was when the coronation was. And she was one of the few kids in her neighborhood that had a TV. And so the, her entire sixth grade class came to her house to watch Queen Elizabeth become the queen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, this is our whole lifetimes, really. Um, do you remember, Charlie, how you first came to this film? I don't, but I did see it shortly after it came out. I think probably... I was probably in college or I just left college and it was probably on TV and I probably taped it up. My parents had the HD, you know, 1080p in about 2006 or seven. And I was so impressed by this that I would record everything that was on the movie channel. And I, I think that was one of the movies that I watched, watched qu quite soon after that. So I would have seen it almost as soon as it came out. It was 2006, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, John, how about you? Uh, I think I probably saw it that week, if not the weekend it came out. I don't recall if I went with anybody. I might have gone by myself to see it, to be honest with you, uh, or seen it with someone who was as film as obsessed with film as I was, because this is Stephen Frears and this is you know, a film that was that got a lot of buzz in the trades ahead of its release in the states because of the reception at the festivals for it. It was one of the first times I remember hearing someone uh, a bunch of people having a standing ovation for five or ten minutes after a screening and certainly i i was a big helen mirren fan or i am a big helen mirren fan so there was a great combination of things here that uh, made me want to watch it the week it came out if not the weekend i definitely saw it in the theater like you i don't remember if it was in the week it came out hmm. i think it was at the arc light i think it was at the cinerama hmm. dome and i remember karen and i went to see it and just being blown away particularly by Helen Mirren. I mean, it's just, it's a stunning, stunning performance. Um, here's a little bit of pre-production. This is a weird project. And so it comes, you know, it's a, it is a project about real events that blends newsreel footage and all that with scenes that are, you know, behind the scenes with the Royals. Um, there certainly were lots of interviews with people from Balmoral and of course, many people from Tony Blair's office, but, the, what is constructed of the family life of the royals that's all made up there is no way to know what was actually going on at the, behind the scenes one of the weird things about this is that this is in a weird way a sequel and even part of a trilogy because there is a film called the deal which also stars michael sheen as tony blair is also directed by stephen frears and is also written by peter morgan mm -hmm. and man peter morgan is having a crazy year when this movie comes out because this is 2006 in the same year he wrote frost nixon mm, uh, which also stars michael sheen and frank langella and a couple of years later that would be a movie with them um, he in this also in the same year he wrote the last king of scotland mm. i mean those are big movies all to come out in the same time and of course uh later on uh he wrote the third in the trilogy which is the special relationship which stars uh dennis quaid as sort of as bill clinton and again michael sheen that one's not directed by stephen frears um and you know Peter Morgan also wrote Rush. He wrote Bohemian Rhapsody recently. And of course, he is the creator of The Crown. So, you know, the, the guy's done a lot in this particular area. 
the reason Stephen Frears directed The Queen is because he had it in his contract in 2003 that when he did the deal, if they ever did anything else like this, he had first right of refusal. So that's how he ends up as a director. I think Stephen Frears is one of the great underrated directors around. Yeah, he doesn't make a point to shine a light on himself. And I think that's really a weird thing with directors nowadays because a lot of directors want to make sure they're they're part of the conversation and highlighted. And Stephen Frears doesn't strike me as one of those that does that. You know what I'm saying? And I think that they're, I think that's why at times people kind of overlook his movies or don't value them in the same way that they would other directors or his contemporaries. Uh, I mean, the list of you know, Prick Up Your Ears, which is a really interesting movie, Dangerous mm-hmm. Liaisons, The Grifters, High Fidelity, Philomena, and then a whole bunch of interesting TV. It reminds me, John, of another director we talked about maybe a year ago who who also does all these great movies and doesn't get credit, and that's Alan Parker. Yes. Um, yeah. Really, really good filmmaker. Um, uh, this is filmed at a whole bunch of different locations all over England, including at uh, Balmoral for some of it. Which is incredible. Absolutely. And again, I just want to highlight this idea that the Queen... And the royal family is someone that have been photographed and observed and talked about. And yet, in some ways, we know very little about them, about their real lives. And that's a lot of what this movie is. Yeah, and I don't know how, um, you know, Charlie feels about this. And we should get into it. By the way, you know, I've I've watched Charlie many times on Real Time with Bill Maher. And I've yelled at him at my television and also agreed with him at my television. So it's, it's fun to be here hanging out and having a conversation about this film. But the other side of this is also um, the context with which this film is taking place. And we should take a moment to really talk about that. And I'd love to hear uh, Charlie's points of views on this and also your Steve as well. I mean, this is a time where just a couple of decades ago, they had tried to become a little more modern by having that TV show done where you sh- they showed behind the scenes of the Royals. And it was a colossal failure uh, in so many ways. The tension of the Margaret Thatcher years were just is still lingering but cooling a little bit. Tony Blair symbolized this new change, this sense of the uh, working class now getting a chance to push back on the rich, now getting a chance to feel like they have a say in the government. And he was, as they say in the movie, he was elected in a landslide situation. So, and the other side here with the Queen, with Diana, you know, Diana had been the sensation. I remember watching her wedding with my mom. Like we watched it there and I was 11 years old or whatever I was when that happened or 10 years old and watching this whole pomp and circumstance. And I am a massive Diana person, massive Diana fan. It has been a source of contention in our house because she's a Princess Kate fan. So it's a, it's a smashing of heads most of the time. We discuss it and HBO just recently did a phenomenal documentary about uh, Diana called The Princess, which people should totally watch. And she had caused so much tension because she had exposed or possibly exposed, depending on your point of view, what had actually been going on behind the scenes with the royals who had been kind of distant and held themselves to a certain higher standard. And there was this feeling they were above everybody else. But Diana had exposed them uh, and in her conversations, in her interviews. And of course, the situation with Charles, which was so horrific for someone to endure the man in love with someone else cheating on her constantly. There were audio tapes that were released. There were videos that were released uh, showing him uh, hitting on Camilla Parker Bowles or speaking about how he wanted to be inside her pants and things of that nature. So there was a lot of embarrassment for the Royals around Diana. So the resentment there wasn't just because she divorced Charles. There was a lot that was um, involved in this. And so, um, Charlie, I'd love to hear what, if what you remember about this and this time and 
everything that was going on here with the factions between the royals and uh, Diana's people. Well, <laughs> have I said too much? I don't know. No, no. Run up to that. <laughs> There's a moment in the movie where the the queen says there's been a shift in values and seems confused. And I, I remember this as a child. I was 12 mm. when it happened. The death, do you mean? Yeah. yeah. I remember the, the death. I was, I was 12 years old. And I remember people around me being somewhat astonished by the outpouring. Mm. And I must confess that even now, I, I do see it as borderline mass hysteria. And maybe this this plays into my general dislike of mobs, hmm. um, of crowd sentiment, yeah. and of, of mawkish emotion. But irrespective of one's view on Diana and irrespective of one's view on what we saw on the streets, it was different. Hmm. I mean, that was a, a, a real move in british sensibilities that's not what the british i want to say do maybe it's did but that's not what the british were famous for right uh, and and it really took the royal family by surprise and i think it took the the new government by surprise and it took Certainly my parents and their friends, and this isn't a political thing, you know, left, right, pro-monarchy, anti-monarchy, by surprise as well. The, 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 whatever it was, and you know, we were watching the movie this morning and my wife said, well, was it a period of economic turmoil? It was the opposite. Yeah. That was one of the great times in history in Britain and America. The, the late 1990s, it was peaceful, it was prosperous. And this came out of nowhere. It was not as if there was this latent tension or upset or that it was really about something else or that it had been spurred by a minor strike or a crash in the stock market this came out of out of nowhere and i'm still a little bit baffled and surprised by it all these years later it it really just occurred to me as you were speaking charlie that that i hadn't thought about it this way but in a lot of ways this is a film about the power of mass media and the power of mass media to create emotional connection and resonance and an image that is beyond their power to control. And, and that is certainly something that I think we deal with again, not to make this political at all, because that's not the direction I want to go with this conversation, but, but that um, we're dealing with today, you know, because yeah. that power is even more powerful today. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have one more memory just to inform what I just said, and that's yeah. the summer leading up to her death. I went to stay for a couple of weeks with a friend of mine whose parents had a little cottage in really the middle of nowhere. And every day we would walk across these rolling hills to the newsagent, which is where you buy everything, milk. You rent the videos from their VHSs. And there were obviously newspapers in the newsagents. Yeah. And, and every day, all summer, all it was on the front page of every newspaper was Diana, 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 Diana. Diana on a boat with Dodi Al-Fayed. Diana photographed in London, in Paris, and wherever. I mean, this was the story. This was Eddie Izzard, the comedian, has a, a, a joke about this where he says, But I think we were thrown because it was like a soap opera. Um, <laughs> kind of similar. Imagine if an episode came out on Monday night, uh, two in the morning, and they killed off the characters. And we went, what? What did they finish that? I was quite... Watch, I was watching that. Uh. <laughs> 
you know, like like the movie had been turned off. That was, and I remember as a twelve year old, that was a big deal. That summer was Diana, Diana. So when she died, yeah. everyone had already been primed to be, you know, emotionally connected and invested in what she was doing. So maybe that had a little part of it as well. And then, of course, the press didn't switch off. The, right. the, the press just continued what it had been doing, but in a different sense. For me, I remember she died on the first day that I went to university, Florida State. I remember the morning that my father had left and I was all alone in this townhouse that we had rented uh, that I was sharing with someone else but wasn't going to show up for a couple of weeks. I remember just turning on the TV and I was dealing with my own homesickness you know, for the first time moving away to Florida from Virginia and sitting and then watching this footage and it just just utter sense of shock. And my father said that when we were talking about the phone later, he said, I haven't seen people react like this since John Kennedy died. And that had been the connective tissue. Right. And I think Charlie brings up an interesting point because this idea of the British as a stiff upper lip and don't show emotion. And it's, it's beneath them to show there's that stereotype. Right. And so it must be fascinating and to hear from the other uh, from Charlie's perspective, how British people reacted to the British people reacting, that it must have been such a weird culture change or sorry, culture shock to see so many people showing their emotions, you know, and there's that one scene in the movie where the queen's assistant, I can't remember the name of the character, but he's after he hears Tony Blair speak about her and calls her the people's princess. He goes, that's a bit much. Don't you think? And then like three quarters of the people are crying behind him and he's really unaware of the, shift that is happening here so it's a fascinating thing to, to, to kind of highlight here as we talk about this because we cannot talk about this movie without understanding the importance of diana to the world at the time whether manufactured or real as we navigate this well and this definitely is a do you remember where you were event mm -hmm. in people's mm -hmm. lives and so i might as well tell mine which is this uh <laughs> she died on august 30th 1997 i was married on september 3rd 1997 wow so all of my friends and family had wow. come to the bay area and we were all hanging out together before we headed up to yosemite which is where i got married so it was a really weird like and like i said my mom was a big princess diana fan so there was all this really weird emotion a couple of yeah. days before i got married um yeah very strange that's funny you say that because peter morgan actually was married on the day she died so oh really he, he talks about that yeah that was an influence for him in writing the film yeah. oh i didn't know that that's really interesting mm. uh so speaking of the film should we jump into it yeah so we start off with a quote uneasy light lies the head that wears the crown mm. I don't think you could have picked a better quote, frankly, <laughs> for this film. Um, and then we get uh, news footage of Michael Sheen, and we're hearing about uh, the election of Tony Blair. And then we cut to the Queen posing for a portrait. And we see Helen Mirren for the first time. John, I don't know if you remember, the last time I think we discussed Helen Mirren was years and years ago when we did Excalibur. Yeah, my favorites. <laughs> I love Excalibur. Talk about a different role. Yeah. Uh, well, and Helen said that in preparation for the role, when they showed her the wardrobe for the first time, she burst into tears because she is a very, you know, she uh, owns her sexuality. She knows the strength of her power. Well, you can go back to see her interviews in the 1970s and yeah. see how much she really respected and herself and her image and as a woman. And so when she saw these, these frumpy, dowdy clothes for her, it actually kind of destroyed her a little bit, which I think is a great way to get into the role and we see from the beginning just the way she's carrying herself just the way she's speaking to the gentleman who is doing her portrait 
how she is going to deliver this role. Um, and apparently, by the way, she was terrified. I'm sure. She said she was more nervous about this part than any other. And what she said, which I really like, was she said, you can't be a mimic. That's not how to do this kind of a role. She says the emotional truth of the story has to be true for you. The key is that there are some things that you must get correct. And then what she said, she described it as being like a portrait painter, which is portraits are not photographs. And that what makes a portrait art is the combination of the subject and what the painter brings to it. And she also said, and it's interesting that you brought up her reaction to the clothes, which I hadn't heard before. Yeah. It wasn't until she put on the clothes yeah. that she like, and then she said everything, everything just worked. Have you voted yet, Mr. Crawford? Yes, ma'am. I don't mind telling you it wasn't for Mr. Blair. You're not a modernizer then. This is, I think, one of the key themes of the film is the modern versus the traditional. And, and it's funny, Charlie, you already brought this up. Like, how important do you think was this idea of modernization when Tony Blair was elected? He's a strange character, really, uh, in the real world, I mean, because he came in as this youthful break with 18 years of conservative party rule. But now, He's regarded by people on the left as this enormous disappointment, not only because really he ended up cementing the, the Thatcherite legacy uh, domestically, but of course he signed on to and enthusiastically prosecuted the war in Iraq. And so, you know, for those people who were celebrating in that footage, uh, he's a, a complicated character after the fact, but at the time, uh, he had some profoundly radical ideas. Uh, he was never in favor of abolishing the monarchy. Yeah. Uh, but he wanted to and succeeded in limiting the hereditary nature of the House of Lords, which is the upper chamber in our bicameral parliament. He wanted to and succeeded in devolving some power away from London to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. And he wanted to, but failed, to change the voting system from first past the post. Uh, the, the Labour Party, I don't think Blair was ever particularly interested in it himself, but the Labour Party wanted to experiment with, with a different uh, way to, to cast the vote. That never happened. But these were big changes. I mean, the last time you'd seen real constitutional reform in Britain was 1910, 1911. So, wow. you know, it had been 80 years or so. Then there was just the media side of it. The fact that he was young, the fact that he had a family that would be moving into Downing Street with him, um, the fact that his uh, wife was a successful lawyer, in fact, a much more successful and better lawyer than he'd ever been, uh, just, just was a, a change from what had come before. But I do think it's important to say there was never any desire to uh, abolish the monarchy or really even to reform the monarchy in Blair's campaigning. By the way, one thing I should say, we, I mentioned at the beginning this film, The Deal, which is the first Stephen Frears, Peter Morgan. It's really good. And it's all about his election, his relationship with Gordon Brown. And I highly, highly recommend uh, checking it out. I envy you being able to vote. Not the actual ticking of the box, although it would be well, it would be nice to experience that once, but the sheer joy of being partial. That is a fascinating line. I mean, I, I think the three of us sitting here, we're all pretty partial people, you know? With I can't can you imagine having to restrain that? It's the job. Yeah. 
But as as Charlie said, you um, are birthed swimming in the monarchy. She, more than anyone, birthed swimming in the monarchy. So the idea of choice is something absolutely foreign to her versus us. You, know. you might not be allowed to vote, ma'am, but it is your government. Yes, I suppose that is some consolation. I do really love what they do with Queen Elizabeth's wit in this film. And then... In the credits, the first thing we see is her name, and she's sitting there in all her royal splendor, and there's this incredible moment when the title The Queen comes up where she just turns and looks at camera. John, what, what's that about? Why, why that choice for the credits? I think it's genius. I think it's a play on this idea of, oh, um, you think you're going to get this kind of regal presentation, uh, but this is an illusion because we're going to go and explore deconstructing this painting. And I think the symbolism there is there the the fact that you have someone painting or portrait, it's an unfinished paint portrait. So mm. in a way, what we're going to see is the other colors that are going to be added to this portrait as we watch this movie, because he is clearly on the queen's side and that's why he's doing her portrait. Of course, she probably approved him. And so they're sharing a common um, mentality. And so he's handling the first part of the portrait as the film goes along, we're going to see, more of the colors that are going to be added to her. So her turning in that way is kind of an illusion um, and also to command respect from you as well. It's a really interesting moment. And it, the, the reaction I have is, so in general, um, and John, you know this for being an actor, actors don't look right into the camera. No, like it's, that's, it's it, uh, frowned upon. It's a major no-no. And part of the reason is it feels weird to the audience. Mm-hmm. Like it feels the it feels like you're looking right at me. And I think it's really interesting that in this movie where we're going to look into an intimate space that we've never been to look at people in a way we've never looked at it, that it starts with her looking at us. Yeah. Uh, we see the Royal Standard flying over the palace. This is going to become an important plot point. And then we go to inside the Queen's bedroom. And I, I was wondering... It's a really weird thing because in one sense, everyone's really familiar with the queen. In another sense, we've never gone into her bedroom. And I'm wondering, Charlie, like how does this feel taboo? Like looking to see the queen lying in bed? Yeah, I think it it does. I, I'm sure you know this, but there was in the 1980s an incident in which right. somebody broke into Buckingham Palace yeah. and managed to get into the queen's bedroom. And sat on the edge of her bed mm-hmm. and while well, she was scared uh, she ended up chatting with him asking him what he wanted he was unemployed disaffected uh, eventually he was arrested but that scandalized the british because that's just not done <laughs> and, and also that's just not taboo that's that's worse because of course it could have turned out horrendously right yeah uh thankfully it didn't so yeah that to me was was a an interesting choice for the beginning of the film because what it said is there's there's no holds barred here yes we're we're going to look inside this family and they are a family i mean this is a silly thing isn't it because she's a human being but you sort of forget well the queen has a bedroom and sleeps and (laughs) eats and goes to the toilet (laughs) i I literally had the same like the same progression of thoughts yeah she must sleep and eat it i guess she has to go to the toilet you know (laughs) i mean but but i mean it's 70 years that this person has been an icon you know like it, it is a very strange thing and what we find out is that it was as expected mr blair won by a landslide uh and then we see 
Tony Blair in his car is heading into Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. And inside the palace, Robin uh, Janvrin, who is her private sec- secretary, comes in. And by the way, this is not accurate. He was not private secretary at this point. At this point, he he was private secretary from 99 to 07. It was his predecessor, Sir Robert Fellows, who was actually her private secretary at this time. And the only speculation I saw on why they didn't use him is that he's actually the brother-in-law of Princess Diana, and maybe that that's the reason that they didn't want him to be involved because it would complicate their story too much. The Prime Minister's on his way, ma'am. And she says, and this is very important. To be, Robin, Prime Minister to be. I haven't asked him yet. Again, this sets up part of what this relationship is going to be and the power structure between them. Funny, I'm actually rather nervous. Why? You met her often enough before. (sighs) I know, but never one-to-one. Never as Prime Minister. Well, just remember, you're a man that's just been elected by the whole nation. But she's still, you know, the Queen. And I think we should take a moment to highlight Helen McCroy, who plays uh, Sherry Blair, uh, Tony's wife. She's a fantastic actress who recently passed away from cancer. She was married to uh, Damien Lewis for many, many years. And so a very fantastic actor. And so she is, as much as Sheen is embodying Tony, if you watch Sherry Blair with with Tony, the physicality that Helen brings to her is great because she's an anti-monarchist. She's very vocal about being anti-monarchy, yet she's married to the prime minister. Uh, and she has a kind of stronger gait. She's not intimidated by moments. And uh, I love that they tease each other in the car and she's not um shy about telling tony her real feelings about the whole situation so that's a nice little element to have in the movie and she was also uh played sherry blair in the trilogy as well more than yeah. once uh with uh with michael sheen well and charlie my understanding is that you met the blairs um how are how are they doing in their portrayals oh i i think they're spot on i was uh, friends with one of their children when I was at university. And so, you know, when you're friends with people at university, you go back to their parents' house sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, we did. It just happened to be 10 Downing Street. And uh, it, was a, it was a strange, uh, exciting time of my life. Um, the, the portrayal of, of Tony Blair by Michael Sheen is so good. It, it is almost impossible to convey to people who haven't met Tony Blair. It, it is, I mean, the, the man becomes Tony Blair. I haven't seen all of the movies you mentioned. I've seen two of them. I've seen the one with Bill Clinton. And, mm. and he, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm astonished by it. And the the Sheree character is very good as well. I think it, she's slightly more confident the way she plays Sheree than mm-hmm. Sheree was. Oh, okay. At least when I met her, Sheree Blair was a little more introverted and uh, perhaps in her own head. I mean, she would be. She was extremely busy and very successful barrister. But no, that scene actually struck me as being as being pretty much spot on all around. Uh, some of the movies uh, a little didactic, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a, there's an attempt to explain what's going on. But I thought that 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 scene where they they meet the queen was just probably almost exactly as it happened. <laughs> 
Um, well, and this is what we have is we have two sides essentially preparing to meet the other. So with the queen, Robin, they're discussing Tony Blair. And it's this weird mix of a very establishment background mixed with the modernizer. And they also discuss Sherry and her maybe lack of respect in a very shallow curtsy, which apparently was a real thing yes. that happened that people talked about. I don't measure the depth of a curtsy, Robin. I'll leave that to my sister. And the atmosphere at Downing Street is expected to be very informal. Everyone on first name terms at the Prime Minister's insistence. What, as in call me Tony? Yes, ma'am. Oh, I don't like that. Uh, and then Tony and Sherry walking up with the, I don't know what the title of the gentleman is, who gives them all the rules they have to follow when you meet the Queen. How nice to see you again, Mr Blair. And congratulations. Oh, children must be very proud. Well, I hope so. You've three, haven't you? That's right. Oh, how lovely. Such a blessing, children. My guess is the Queen's manners and ability to speak in a mannered way must be real high. <laughs> I think <laughs> she's got a lot of practice. Yeah. Um, and then the next line she has, and I'm curious, do you think that the Queen would actually ask this question? And if so, did she ask it of every single prime minister after a certain point? Have we shown you how to start a nuclear war yet? <laughs> That's a weird question. I mean... It's certainly a question that would set someone at ease in a in a funny way because it because it's it's comical and yeah. there's all this pomp and circumstance and you know I was thinking watching this I'd be terrified that that I would make some mistake or I'd turn my back or I'd not remember the protocol but you suddenly get asked that and it lightens the mood which is such a weird thing to say about nuclear war <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly its intention. Mm -hmm. um, well, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's two things because, yes, I agree with you, but it also throws him for a loop, you know, because he's certainly not a question he would expect. By the way, the historical advisor on this film is a guy named Robert Lacey, who wrote a book called Majesty. And what he said was he said that for the prime ministers meeting with the queen, they all said felt like meeting with the headmaster of the school. And kind of said, she is there to help you, but she's also really scary. And when she disapproves, you feel it. It is a very strange relationship, I think. You contrast the two introductions, right? You have a nervous Tony Blair. Our first experience with Tony Blair, Michael Sheen in the car, is this nervousness. You know, of course, Sherry, as you said, a little more confident in the film is more like, well, what are you nervous about? You know, the whole the whole country's behind you. She's just a queen. You have the whole country. So in a way, trying to equalize the situation for him to calm his nerves down but the queen is like very much in her element to the portrait and waiting for him. This is all he's coming to her. So it's a great introduction. So you you sense a little bit of the vulnerability of the queen in the portraits sequence. And then here you sense real vulnerability with uh, Tony Blair. So you're going to follow both of these characters as in its essence a two-hander, even though it's called the queen, throughout the story. So you want to connect to both of them. So as an audience member, you can appreciate them and see where you fall with them but you don't automatically make up your mind and then that's it for the rest of the movie. It's a nice uh, introduction for both of them when you look at it. You obviously know my job better than I do. Yes, well, you are my 10th prime minister, Mr. Blair. Which, of course, by the time she died, she had had 15. Yes. My first, of course, was Winston Churchill. He sat in your chair in frock coat and top hat. He was kind enough to give a shy young girl like me quite an education. I can imagine. And of course, that's a big difference between Britain and America. And that's why I think presidents often end up friends with former presidents. Because in the case of British prime ministers, 
there's a continuity there in the queen to mm. which they can refer. Mm. But in the case of a president, there's no one. You come in and no one briefs you from a position of power, mm. except perhaps the last guy who writes you right. a letter and will take your phone calls. <laughs> but there's right. no one who comes in like the headmaster and says, right, let me tell you about your job. Let me tell you what to do for a while. Because the president is the head of state. And that's that's a strength of the monarchy, but also in the, in the context of this movie, that's an important scene because that's the point at which she's still in control. Yeah. Um, I never thought about it that way of like the value of the new person being able to touch on continuity. That That's really, really interesting. And the power dynamic is so kind of fascinating, particularly at this moment. With time, one has hopefully added experience to that education and a little wisdom better enabling us to execute our constitutional responsibility. I think it's such a statement of, no, I know what I'm doing. I've been here. You're the new guy. You need to look to me for real advice, you know. If there's nothing else, I believe we have some business to attend to. And then Tony Blair messes up. <laughs> she is supposed to ask him to take over control of the government. And in fact, he asks her and she very politely scolds him. <laughs> the duty falls upon me as your sovereign to invite you to become prime minister and to form a government in my name. What I love is that now he's a little nervous because he just messed up. I mean, if you agree, the custom is to say yes. Yes. And then <laughs> in come, they invite his wife in and her curtsy is so perfectly awkward. Like, you got to really work hard to get that exact level of awkwardness, I think. Well, I don't know it's awkward. I think it's purposeful in its non-committal to the curtsy. That's on purpose. And apparently the queen got a kick out of it. You know, she's not as stuffy or fuddy-duddy as people might think. She did get a kick out of the fact that, I mean, she that she didn't fully commit to the curtsy all the time. And they have a brief, very brief moment of small talk. And then in comes Robin, who whispers something to them. I'm so sorry. We're going to have to leave it there. They curtsy and bow and back out again awkwardly. Not too short, was it? 15 minutes. One doesn't want to be rude. No. So this was clearly the planned get me the heck out of here move. And then Sherry and Tony walking down the stairs. Thank you very much for coming. Now, fuck off. I wouldn't talk like this like five minutes. You're still in. You're in the it's, palace. <laughs> it's like criticizing a play while you're still in the theater. It's kind of weird. You don't do that. So yeah. uh, I've done that. Yeah, you shouldn't, though. <laughs> Listen, I've seen some bad plays. <laughs> I mean, not in front of the actors, but. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. She's yeah. within somewhat earshot of the people who work for her. So, yeah. Outside then, yeah. the theater, knock yourself out. I know. What was all that about? God knows. Diana. Whatever it is, it'll be something to do with Diana. It's a perfect setup for a cut. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of bring something up here, which is that. There are infinite number of ways to make a movie. You make a decision like, okay, we're going to make a movie about the death of Princess Diana. There's a million ways to approach it. They could start it at when Charles and Diana first met. They could start at the wedding. They could start it when the, you know, the divorce begins. They could start at any point, and you could approach it in a lot of different ways. And one of the most interesting choices they make is that they create a fictitious royal family and a fictitious Tony player with these actors. But Diana is the real Diana. Mm -hmm. And the world surrounding her death is the real world. And so you're contrasting, continually intercutting this created, this manufactured world with the actual real footage. And I think it has a really powerful effect. And we go 
really quickly into this controversy. Princess Diana embroiled in more controversy as she pulls out of a meeting with MPs. Princess Diana moved today to patch up her relations with the former royal nanny. Princess Diana flew to Milan today for the memorial service for the murdered Italian fashion designer Gianni Versace. And then we're starting to introduce the paparazzi and the spying on her to get that photograph. Princess Diana sailed out into the Mediterranean and one of Mr. Mohammed Al-Fayed's yachts today with his son. Quarter of a million pounds for the photographs, which appear to show the couple embracing. Not gonna lie to you, half of me went, ah, I could maybe understand trying to get a picture here of this situation for a quarter of a million pounds, but not that I approve of the paparazzi in any way, shape, or form. I, I, also, Steve and, and Charlie, let me hear your thoughts on this. This is a crafty decision by Stephen Frears. He does not show any of the controversies that Diane is involved in. He just says that there are controversies. We don't go knee deep into the actual controversy at this point. So it's to establish her as this kind of good person and this tragedy that we're about to hear happens to her that affects everybody. So in a way, he keeps her in a certain glass case. So it's something that the audience can use as a prism to see this relationship through and their reactions to her death. Um, instead of, as we're getting both Tony Blair's side and the Queen's side and how they react to this, we're not getting too much of Diana other than she was this people's princess, she was beloved, and her brother speaks about the press. So it's an interesting decision by Stephen Frears not to dive too deep into her and just leave her as this sort of two-dimensional figure and, you're make, and you as the viewer make up your own mind how to feel about her as the movie goes along. I, I'm glad you brought that up, John. I, was, there's a line that happens later in the movie, but I want to bring it up now because I mm. think it's a critical line to the film, which is at one point later on, Charles says about his family, but they are still making the mistake of thinking that the Diana they knew from living and dealing with her would eventually be the one seen by the public, but it won't. There are two Dianas. The public's and ours bear no relation to one another at all. Fuck Charles, in my opinion, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> That's my personal opinion. <laughs> um, well, that might be your opinion, but the point he makes, I think, is really critical, hmm. which is that we manufacture an idea of what we think she is. And like having done, I know it's a weird analogy, but having done two Great White Shark documentaries, that's what we dealt with in terms of the image of the Great White Shark is there is a per perception in the world of what that animal is, and you can't fight that perception. And I think with Diana and with all sorts of other things, it's real tough to fight a manufactured image. Yeah, where do you where do you sit on the whole thing, Charlie, with Diana? What has been your experience with the portrayal and the image and how it's used here in the movie? Well, I think she's been somewhat sanctified. Hmm. I I see the whole situation as something of a tragedy. I think she often behaved badly. Certainly, Charles often behaved badly. Uh, it was an arranged marriage yeah, and probably doomed from the start. But as you say, there was a, a perception of her and that perception, which still exists, mm. it will probably always exist. She was a source of great fascination. And I mean, just look at what happened the minute she died. Elton John rewrote Candle in the Wind and released yeah. it. And it became the, I think, the fastest selling single in British history. <laughs> That's the image. And I mean, I, it's, I don't think it's the case in the movie, though, that they don't challenge it. They do it later on. 
We'll, we'll come to all of yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, at but, this but point. You're right. At the beginning, yeah. then she is a porcelain doll still. Right. And I think probably that is how she was regarded by the public. Mm-hmm. Um, although, of course, when, when you're in a summer of endless tabloid fodder, which we were at that point, you, you don't get that without some uh, salacious you know, implication. Like it, 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 it's interesting because it, it's morally compromised, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think you're right. I, I think that's how she was seen, and it's interesting that's how they set it up. Yeah, three three different introductions, right, Steve? I mean, mm. the queen with the portrait and holding court. So we see her as kind of a stuffy person. Blair's kind of a nervous person who is intimidated by the queen, and then Diane and the as the as uh, uh, Charles so eloquently said, as the porcelain doll. But all yeah. those images are going to be challenged as the movie goes along. So it's a great presentation of the three main characters or essences that we're going to be gravitating through throughout the film. I honestly think that celebrity in general can be a really toxic thing. No. I mean, it's toxic for the people who are the celebrities who, you know, all the microscope is pointed at them because humans are humans and that no, nobody can survive being constantly examined in every minute detail. I mean, <laughs> only Tom Cruise. He's the only one that's ever survived. Well, and he he had a moment where he almost didn't, but he, he managed did. to recover from that. I'm um, waiting for the rocks moment. I'm waiting for the rocks moment. Man, he's smooth. The rock is the rock has got some major charisma going on, but it's rough. And and I think it's kind of toxic for us. I, I I don't think it's a healthy thing. We see on screen Paris, August 30th, 1997. Or I think it actually says 30th August 1997. And if you know what that date is, you know what's coming. And I think the build to her death. And the way they structure it is just beautifully done. You see the reporters and paparazzi outside her hotel looking like, you know, hyenas. You see the motorcycles revving up, you know, like predators. The music is super tense. And this is Alexander Desplat, who's, you know, a fantastic composer. Uh, and again, one of those underrated people who's who's done amazing scores. We don't hear his name all the time, listed with some of the other big composers. And the clack of the pictures being taken those clicks over and over again the motorcycles chasing the whole thing is building it's super tense as they're getting closer to closer and then what i find so interesting is the cutting to the archival footage of like her getting into an ordinary car and like that is the beginning of this relationship with the press and then as it builds and builds and the tension increase and we see the car going into that tunnel where we know she's going to die and the last thing we see is Diana's hand coming up and covering the lens of the camera. That's a great montage. Yeah, this time around, um, watching it, I um, a day the end of a day in the life by the Beatles came to me. The oh, build totally. at the end, right? I'd love to tell more. That's what it felt like to me. Like they were. I could have set this montage to that ending of that song up until the, uh, her covering the camera. And of course that's about a death as well. And, and what have you. So it's just a fascinating approach by Stephen Frears in this way. And it oh, that, immediately- that song has the lyric, he blew his mind out in the car as well. Yeah. So it's yeah. even more yeah. episode. Um, yeah. So now John, you made me, I'll, I'll do it. I'll cut it to the montage. I'll, 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 I'll say, and I'll send it challenge. to you. a challenge. Um, I, I bet it'll work really well. 
I bet so too. And then we have the news going around. We have Robin waking up to a phone call. We have um, a very dark shot of Balmoral's exterior. Uh, and we see someone rushing upstairs and they knock on the door and tell the queen that Jarvin wants to see them. Uh, and by the way, James Cromwell is there. Um, Prince Philip. A, I love James Cromwell. <laughs> He's one of my favorite actors. <laughs> B, I'm not such a fan of this of Philip, this guy, particular guy, as portrayed in this film. Not that he's not good. I also, my understanding is that they did not sleep in the same bed together. They slept in separate rooms. That's my understanding. And uh, and that's we not hear, your business, American. That's not your business. <laughs> <laughs> it's all my business, John. Cameras everywhere. I'm sorry to disturb, but I've just had a call from our embassy in Paris. It's the Princess of Wales. Why? What's she done now? That is a great, great line to set up what these relationships are. And then we cut to Tony in bed, finding out. What they're saying is that the princess is in the intensive care unit of a southeast Paris hospital. She has concussion, a broken arm, and... What was she doing in Paris? I thought she was supposed to be in London. Oh, you know what she's like. The way we talk about someone before we know the tragedy happens is the honest way that's how they really talk about them and then after everyone gets on their good behavior and then uh in comes prince charles john your favorite guy played by alex jennings i think his performance is fascinating in this movie i believe he's in the king's speech as well as the other a brother who abdicates the throne for oh the counter i think that's him as I think well. that's and crown the crown oh sorry no he's in the crown you're right i'm sorry he's in the crown in that that's right so not not unaccustomed to playing royals this actor yeah i should go to paris so I, I told my people to start organizing a jet what a private one yes but isn't that precisely the sort of extravagance they always attack us for and this is going to be one of the conflicts is that elizabeth is trying to put out a certain kind of image that she thinks the public wants from her and from the royals and whether or not that is the right image and how that creates conflict within her family is a lot of what the movie's about. How else am I supposed to get to Paris at this time of night? The airport at Aberdeen will be closed. Charles, Charles, use the royal flight. They keep one plane on permanent standby in case I should kick the bucket. The Queen Mother, who's played by Sylvia Sims. So good. So good. She is a constant source of, of pleasure, I think, in this movie. And I also should point out that, Charles, on your new podcast, in your second <laughs> episode, you had an expert on the Queen Mother on. Oh. Um, and so I highly recommend, if anyone wants to listen to it, they should. Yeah, that was serendipitous, given this. And it was funny watching the movie, because I thought, ah, now I know all about you. And there's a, there's a moment when she has a drink, and she's sort of wisecracking, and... She's sitting there in a role that she had the Queen Mother for 50 years. It's essentially her own daughter's advisor, so the advisor to the advisor, the continuity to the continuity. Boy, this is a long-lived family. Yeah, they live forever. I mean, well, not her dad, I guess. No, but he had lung cancer because he smoked 80 cigarettes a day. Well, that'll do it. No, Mommy, that's out of the question. This isn't a matter of state. What are you talking about? Diana's no longer a member of the royal family. She's not an HRH. This, this is a private matter. She's mother to your grandchildren. The conflict between Charles and his mom, I find to be painful, unknowable on some level, and just rough to watch. 
So if, if I can briefly defend the Queen here, in that I think it's important to note that at this point, they think Diana has a broken arm. Right. right. And the conflict is, is presaged. And once we know Diana's dead, then the calculation changes. And of course, that's what the movie is about. But yeah. at this point, it was not unreasonable for the queen to say well she's not in the royal family anymore she made her own decisions you charles and she have messed everything up uh i don't want this to redound against me and yeah. you know, to, to me at that point there's much less tension or controversy than there w- was about to be but it is a yeah. good way of setting up the family dynamic uh, by the way one thing that i read is that at the evening papers before they knew about this accident they were covered Charlie, as you said, with just all Diana all the time, all gossip. And by the morning editions, it was all St. Diana, the most amazing, uh, incredible person in the world. I've just spoken to our ambassador in Paris, ma'am. I'm afraid it's not good news. And then we have a really hard, jarring cut from Queen and Philip hearing this news to Charles hearing this news and just letting out this sound (laughs) of shock and grief and pain and a lot, of, a lot of stuff in there. And then we're with Tony. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to continually move from the Royals to Tony Blair and 10 Downing Street and his family. What have I got on this week? You're writing your maiden conference speeches, Prime Minister. Well, let's cancel everything else. This is going to be massive. I don't know if you're if you're gonna bring this up later, Steve, but I think one of the things one of the things I discovered in in doing research for this is that. Stephen shot the film with the Royals in 35 millimeter and then everything with Tony Blair in 16 millimeter. So I did you, not know that. That's yeah, he, awesome. It was on purpose to make it feel as if he was of the working class and she was of and her family was of the higher order so you were seeing the contradiction uh, cuz obviously more people were going to gravitate to Tony's uh, uh journey than the Queen's necessarily initially. So having this balance, I think, was an interesting way to sort of manipulate the viewer to see things in a certain way and um, buy into the initial construction of both of their worlds and how different they were. Which comes through here, I think, at this moment, as you see him eating the Cheerios with his or cornflakes with his kids and his wife is there and they're watching on the small ass television, all of that. So, yeah. Well, this is this thing we're going to do throughout this whole film is the contrast of two families mm. and yet they are both recognizably families, you know, yeah. Yeah. despite the fact that one of them is in these, you know, crazy environments. And as we talk about what are we going to do, we cut to, uh, Alistair Campbell, who's played by, uh, Mark Baisley. And it's always in a film like this, this is the combination of many characters, but Alistair Campbell is a real guy. I, my understanding is he's fairly anti-monarchist. Mm. And in his notebook, we see him writing the words people's, princess which is a source of controversy because the bbc claims that one of their correspondents came up with it hours ahead of time in a report in a report and it just came out extemporaneous like a you know just came out it wasn't meant to be a thing that they quoted her as and then campbell took it and used it in the speech and went from there so and I read in 2007, Tony Blair came out and said, no, no, I came up with People's Princess. Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the truth of this is, but obviously <laughs> this is very important. And we'll, you know, we need to Zabruta film this until we make sure we know where it came from. I love the queen in her pink fluffy robe. <laughs> uh, 
And this is so much of what this movie is about is like, oh, no, this is like your grandmother. She's just an ordinary person. And she looks through the door and sees a beautifully lit shot. Uh, The DP, by the way, is Afonso Bito um, of Charles telling the boys. And this is something I want to bring up. More than almost any other movie I've I can think of that we've done on the show, my feelings about this film were affected by modern events. Like, mm. I mean, there are lots of movies where John, you and I have said the words, well, with 2022 eyes, we think differently about yeah, that. And that sure. happens all the time. Mm-hmm. But but this, because, and like I said, I didn't follow all this stuff that carefully, but knowing what would happen later with these two sons yeah. really affected me watching this movie. Did either of you have that experience? Nope. To be honest with you, my my response to it this morning was thinking about having to tell my own two boys. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was that was where my my mind went rather than to the real boys. Perhaps that's selfish. But no, uh, I projected I myself into the screen into the scene. Um, you think of yourself as somehow a royal. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the accent. They tease me about the accent all the time, so at least I could get something for it. Prince Charlie. Um, there you go. <laughs> I, I think from watching it this time, you know, I, I as I said earlier, I'm I'm not a Charles fan. I hated what he did to her and and put her through, and and of course she had her missteps as well. The Camilla Parker stuff is still hard for me to swallow that she's queen consort. That's still hard for me considering all that was done behind Diana's back. And I don't know how because I mean later on, just again later on, the film is going to deconstruct Charles as well because initially you see him as the grieving father and the grieving husband and all this. But then you see as the film goes on, how he is manipulating this story to take advantage of the sympathy for him because he had been so vilified uh, with, through the whole Diana situation and embarrassed through the whole Diana situation. And certainly in the crown that gets explored real deeply, at least so far. And we're going to see in the new season, how much, how deep they go into it with, Elizabeth Debicki stepping in as an older Diana and I think Simon West coming in as the older Charles and how that all plays out. So he had a very complicated relationship with his mother and already there've been videos of him losing his temper since he became king and kind of people already ready to pounce on him, which is unfortunate because who knows how you process the death of your mother and what that brings out in you. So there's already a kind of an anti-Charles sentiment building. Um, so, yeah, initially when we see him, there's certainly emotions here, but him telling his children, and we see, and we know now in retrospect when Harry has spoken about how much that death has still affected him, uh, whereas William has maintained his very proper approach to it, Harry is much more open to discussing it. So it's, it's, it's a really good point you bring up, Steve, him telling the children at this moment. Um, and he turns away, and I think this is – a movie that is largely about trying to figure out what's going on inside of a person who's very difficult to read, who doesn't express a lot of emotions. And this is one of those moments where you can see something is going on, which is Charles turns away and you can see the queen start to reach out or think about reaching out or wanting to connect on some level. And then he stops and he turns back and he says, my private secretary's office have found a travel agency opened in New York that will, Sell me a flight to Paris with an hour's stopover in Manchester. Perhaps now you might like to consider whether it's still an extravagance to bring back the mother of the future King of England in one of our planes. 
So at the moment that maybe she was going to express some motherly compassion, he comes back at her with this, mm. you know, and, and correctly. So, I mean, I, you know, I think I understand what's going on with him. And she says, all right, of course. It's so, it's so rough because it's so like, I mean, I come from, I'm from California, America, grew up, you know, in the hippy dippy world where people are, gave each other hugs and stuff like that. You know, so watching this is like going, oh, reach out to him, have some connection, but they're not going to have that. John, I don't want the boys to see the news and get upset. First thing in the morning, I want the radio taken out of the bedroom and the television taken out of the nursery. Yes, ma'am. Part of what I feel is weird about this is there is a very conscious choice to not show the boys to never really be with them they're only in the distance they never speak and her whole motivation she says is i'm a grandmother i want to um, protect my grandkids yeah. but we never see her with the grandkids and so mm-hmm. what happens and this is why i had such a different reaction to it this time is that she's saying one thing but is that in fact her motivation and is she in fact caring about the grandkids or not And I don't know the answer. Well, certainly Philip, uh, later on in the movie and in real life, if you watch the footage, kind of snaps a little bit at somebody when they say, we're thinking of the children, we're thinking of the children. And he goes, yeah, that's what we've been doing, uh, taking care of them. And he's, so you can tell that Philip has a stronger point of view on this whole situation. And I imagine for Elizabeth, it was just so weird to navigate this all. Yeah. Uh, and the way it's constructed because of her complicated feelings for Diana, but also I'm sure she loved the grandchildren. And certainly Harry and William have spoken about the love they have for their other mo- grandmother, and, and she has spoken about her love for them. So we may not see it in the film, but it was certainly there. Yeah, I think one, one thing about that scene where Philip says, oh, I'll, I'll take them out hunting, is, mm-hmm. essentially, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, I can't That's remember, right. but is that it does illustrate the generational difference mm. and the the age gap that then manifests itself as the film progresses in the the argument essentially between the, the royal family and tony blair in that yes william and harry will of course go out with their grandfather hunting but they'd never have done that on their own i doubt they'd go hunting now yeah yeah right and nor did charles Right. Now, again, Charles probably felt obliged to do so when he was younger. But there's, there's no way that is Charles's uh, interest. What, what Charles likes doing is, to, you know, growing and talking to plants and thinking yeah. about, you know, conservation. By the way, <laughs> what he likes doing is talking to plants. This sort of puts an interesting image in my mind. Well, he does. He does. He yeah. talks to plants. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> there, there have been a couple of documentaries on the Acorn or the other app we have that we watch British TV on where you see him for like 45 minutes walking amongst his plants and talking. This yeah, is why I think he's going to hate being king. But no. <laughs> uh, but in Philip's day, going out and hunting or walking around was what was done. And, you know, to go back to the the podcast uh, to which uh, Steve referenced, the Queen Mother dealt with her grief, the author of the book that we reviewed told me, by walking around Scotland in the cold and feeling the the chill hit her face. And that was a, a, a very old school British aristocratic way of, of dealing with anguish. 
that is probably not that effective and at the very least was not how uh, William and Harry would have done it. And the key part, I think, is certainly not how Diana would have done it. Mm. Right. And so that to me was a, it was jarring, especially as a, as a parent. That was a jarring moment where I thought, it's not that Philip's wrong per se. It's that we're about to see this big clash of generational attitudes towards healing. Two things. The first is clearly I am like a centenarian Brit because the description of I'm dealing with grief by walking out in the cold, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> That's totally what I would do. I, I Having been through some emotional stuff, my salute, literally through the whole pandemic, if I didn't take a long walk every day, I was upset because I'm an introvert. Wow. And that, oh yeah, no, it became like, I have to go, I have to go on a walk. Partially because I'm trapped in my house with my family and they're two loud extroverts and i was like i gotta go away love you guys gotta go so i totally get that i think it's part of it is that's philip's only answer which makes sense because you go well this is what works for me and it's very hard to see that something that works for you is actually not what's going to work for someone else but it does feel so painfully out of touch and i keep thinking about these kids who are grieving their mother and this old guy's like let's go hunting again <laughs> you know it just feels so painful which is also why i continually notice the entire lack of any interaction between the queen and the grandkids it just really sticks out to me uh we also hear in this scene with philip that they're talking about elizabeth's sister what did she say something about diana managing to be even more annoying dead than alive just make sure you never let the boys hear you talk like that of course it's so funny to watch this film after seeing The Crown, the first five, uh, four seasons of The Crown, because certainly that division between uh, his, her sister and Diana is there. Uh, and Anne even is shown as having a lot of negative feelings towards Diana while she's with Charles. I don't know how much of that is true, obviously, because we're only seeing it through the prism of Peter Morgan is writing. But certainly there are a number of reports that she was not liked by a number of the women in the family. I don't know if either of you, and I'm certainly not asking you to, to to speak about it if you didn't want to, but have had to deal with the death of somebody who you really, really didn't like or who many people really, really didn't like. And then you had to go to the funeral and do the stuff. I would go. I have. And it is, uh, it's weird. It's a weird circumstance. Um, anyway, sorry. I'm curious <laughs> to Charlie's answer. If he's, he said, to no, go I, I was trying to think. I, I yeah. don't think I have. I, have a very small family, so the, the scope for that's quite limited, happily. Yeah. And now we cut to, and again, this is a character in the film. The real footage of people showing up at Buckingham Palace and putting down the flowers and more and more. And the scale of this is just, it's, it's hard to fathom. We've heard nothing official from the palace yet. We still don't know when we're going to get any further statements from inside the palace or, of course, when the royal family are due back. And we cut to Tony, who's practicing his speech. And in the midst of practicing his speech, on TV comes uh, Charles, the Earl of Spencer, which is Diana's brother, who reads his statement, which is a extremely angry and understandably angry attack on the press that he believes cost them, cost his sister her life. It would appear that every proprietor and editor of every publication that has paid for intrusive and exploitative photographs of her has blood on his hands today. But in the midst of this, Alistair says, Not the press, mate. You've got the wrong villain. What's he saying there? Blaming the monarchy. 
blaming the queen. He even says later, he says, uh, are you sure the queen didn't grease the brakes? You know, oh, he's yeah. very clear about his point of view on the, um, the complicit nature of the monarchy to her death. What I was wondering, I guess, is that are they complicit in her death? That's one thought, one mm. thing, which I think you're right. She talks about greasing the brakes. Mm. But the other is, who will the public cast as the villain in this story? Mm. And they definitely, I think, cast the monarchy as the villain. And the press. In the documentary, like I mentioned, in the documentary there on HBO, there's footage of people yelling at the press for being there, covering their grief, yelling at them, saying, you're the reason she's dead. You killed her. And so there was no issue with that. There's even a sequence where Christopher Hitchens is confronted by some people while he's doing an interview on the park bench there. And of course, lashes out as Christopher Hitchens always lashed out in that way. If you go back in time, you'll find all sorts of reform initiatives across Europe proposed in parliaments. You can't have this in America, thankfully, because the First Amendment's in the way. But yeah. Stupid First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. But paparazzi reform was introduced in Italy, France, I think to an extent in Britain. So the press got it in the neck. Yeah. We're going to, again, have these contrasting moments where we have the royals having breakfast in their environment. And like I said, some of this was shot at Balmoral. I don't think the interiors were, but I'm not sure. Mm. And then Robin enters and says that the prime minister uh, would like to speak with you. And so she heads off there. And then we have this contrast between the world of the queen talking on the phone to the world of Tony Blair uh, which is just seems like in, you know, with family and stuff. And uh, I think he's wearing a jersey. A Newcastle jersey, yeah. I, I, I just assumed, but probably both of you would know what that is. And of course I don't. Is it your intention to make some kind of appearance or statement? No, no, certainly not. And she's surprised that he would even ask the question. No, no member of the royal family will speak publicly about this. This is a private matter. We would all appreciate it if it could be respected as such. I personally believe that there's a real value in following the rules and traditions as they're supposed to be followed, particularly around death, because it tells you what you're supposed to do in a time when it's hard to figure out what it's supposed to do. And that's what the Queen is doing, in, or that's what she thinks she's doing. Well, we've spoken with the Spencer family, and it is their wish, it is their express wish that this should be a private funeral with a memorial service to follow in a month or so. Right. Given that Diana was no longer a member of the royal family, we have no other choice but to respect their wishes. And that is technically right. Mm -hmm. Th that is what you are supposed to do. And watching Tony Blair's reaction to this and him trying to figure out how to speak to her to make her understand a thing that he knows, which is that this is the wrong move. This sets up the conflict for the rest of the movie, is this moment right here, this conversation. You know, the queen is out of touch. His instincts are more in touch with what the public would want. And this becomes the thing. He, him trying to bring her to the understanding that he has, but then her behavior get him to understand why she behaved the way she did. So it's, this is the conversation that kind of sets these two paths apart where we will eventually lead to them meeting by the end of the movie. But yeah. And she starts to get mad as he pushes. Yes, she does. She hangs know. up on it. In essence, yeah. hangs up. This is a family funeral, Mr. Blair, not a fairground attraction. I think the princess has already paid a high enough price for exposure to the press. Don't you? No, if there's nothing else, I must get on. The children have to be looked after. And then, as you say, she hangs up on him. Of course. 
<clears throat> well, goodbye, you mentioned. Charlie, I've listened to you now for years. Say what you think should be done in a certain circumstance. If you're Tony Blair on this phone call, do you, how would you handle the queen? <laughs> well, the, the takeaway I had from this scene and many of the subsequent scenes is that they're both right. Mm. Yeah. And this is why I like this movie so much, because often when a screenwriter or a director wants to establish tension, they cartoonize both positions or they pretend that there was an argument where there was none. For example, you see the movie Sully about Mm. the plane that landed? I didn't, but Tom Hanks, yeah. Well, he in the movie is criticized by these various professional groups and the federal government. And it never really happened. They did ask him questions because they had to, but they set this up and it works really well because you want to watch the movie and you want there to be some tension and, Mm. you know, you're rooting for Tom Hanks. But that didn't happen. But in this case, it did. And I think that the tension is so acute because they're both right in that she is looking at hundreds of years of tradition. She is looking at what she knows about the British public. She is looking at what she has been trained her whole life to expect. And Blair realizes that somehow this is different, that something has snapped in the British public, that something has changed. And he can see it where she can't. Had this happened in 1977... Hmm. she'd have been right. Had it happened in 1987, she'd have been right. There was just something about that moment, that person, that something in the water where it's different. And Blair can see it and she can't. And, you know, he's not completely right and she's not completely wrong. And because of that, they're both coming from a position of integrity and honesty. And you feel like you're caught in the middle. (laughs) I didn't feel like I wanted to side with either one. You know, I wasn't like there's a villain and then there's a hero. But it's funny the way you asked that question, you know, what would you have said? Because I was sitting there and uh, Michael Sheen just plays this so beautifully. You can see the cogs go. Exactly. Because what do I say? How can I convince this? And he doesn't quite want to push. And if it were a member of his cabinet or his press secretary, he would obviously just argue with them. Yeah. But he can't argue with the queen, although he does at some point try. And he's, he's trying to find an angle. He's trying to feel her out. He's hoping she finishes his sentences for him. (laughs) He asks these slightly open questions. He cracks the door open a bit and then, and then she shuts it. It was just magnificently done because that has to have been impossible. That must have been frustrating and intimidating. So, you know, these are great, these are great scenes, but they're great scenes because they're both right. And because the arguments that they're both advancing are are plausible. Yeah. It's not as if, well, obviously just get on with it. And let's not forget he's still a new prime minister. So this is a hell of a thing to be taking on right off the bat, you know? Well, and, and, and by the way, this is why I've enjoyed listening to you for several years now, Charlie, is that, most things are complicated. Hmm. Most things are not actually divided into that's evil and I'm good and that's it. You know, most right. things actually, there are reasons that people might believe a thing that you, even something you find fairly repugnant, there's a reason that someone might believe that. 
Um, and and I a hundred percent agree. Watching all the squirms from Tony Blair as he's trying to walk this tightrope is so great. Uh, but needless to say, this doesn't go anywhere. And then the Royals are heading off to chapel, which they do every Sunday. And the question is, should they make any changes in the service? And the answer is absolutely not. Of course not. Which, again, in one sense, they're right. and But then we contrast, because this is a movie about contrast. We contrast that with Tony Blair and his family showing up at church. And then he's going to give this speech. She touched the lives of so many others. In, in Britain, throughout the world, with joy and with comfort. Again, Michael Sheen is such a good actor. By the way, have you seen, John, you might have seen it, there was a clip of Michael Sheen just doing a monologue on some talk show that mm -hmm. was like, I think it was a Welsh thing or something. Well, he and was it, inspiring the Wales national team that's to what play it was. recently in the, um, in the uh, was it the European Championship or National League, Nations League Championship, a World Cup qualifying, something. But he was inspiring them to play well. I think it was the female team, actually. So, yeah. Dude. I mean, I mean, we, maybe we'll post a link to it because watching the contrast between the Michael Sheen in this movie and the guy that does that, the yeah. power that's coming off of him just on that thing. Have you seen this, Charlie? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's amazing. He plays Brian Clough, right? Yeah, he did in uh, Damned United. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great film. Or at least in my opinion, a great film. I know. Um, but um, but the other thing you need to watch is him and David Tennant in that series they've been doing where they're putting on a play. If you want to see the other side of it too, Steve, where he is like reduced down to his working roots and the back and forth, it is beyond hilarious, uh, yeah. the, com the comedy they find in that. The people everywhere, not just here in Britain, everywhere, they kept faith with Princess Diana. They liked her, they loved her. They regarded her as one of the people. She was the people's princess. And this is the moment, I think, John, that you mentioned earlier with Robin watching and turns to the people in the room with him and says, A bit over the top, don't you think? Prime Minister. The reaction to that and the women that are weeping there, that's where he starts to know, mm -hmm. you know. And we cut to, again, the news and an anchor repeating this line, the people's princess. And we can see that the news anchor is deeply moved. Now that's an actual that's actual footage, too. Right. That's right. I remember watching that footage live. Were you sitting around the TV like, you know, I assume John was watching this stuff as it was happening? Yeah, I was actually the first person in my family to find out because I used to wake up really early and I would usually read. But sometimes I would turn on the TV I had in my room and the news would be on. It was all that was on. And of course, I turned on the TV. It was early and this was all that was on it. And I went and woke my parents up. And then we basically just had the TV on all day, which was unheard of in our house. We weren't allowed to watch much TV. Wow. But yeah, I just remember watching that for the over the next few days. We watched a lot of TV. It was a bit like 9-11 in that regard. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was very different, but but the the constant thirst for new information. I, I was just going to say there's this weird set of events in my life where we were glued to the TV. 9-11 obviously being the most profound one for me and we're in Paris and Charles has arrived and again I like that when he goes to the coffin in the Paris hospital that we're see it behind glass and we see him reacting I think we see him maybe saying something but we don't know what it is there's definitely a an effort to keep us at a remove I think from Charles 
And then Tony is heading to the airport and we have a brief conversation with the Lord Chamberlain that there will be a meeting about this big funeral. And he shows up at the plane where Charles getting off the plane, who pulls Tony aside and says, They stood up as we drove past in cafes, in restaurants, removed their hats. This was Paris, one of the busiest cities in the world, and you could hear a pin drop. I imagine it will be the same here. What do you think Charles is going through as he drives through Paris with the body watching this reaction? <laughs> I couldn't possibly <laughs> speculate other than to assume that he was, if, from what the movie's presenting to us, he was um, reminded yet again of Diana's popularity, which was a source of contention during their marriage, sure. how he was being overshadowed by her popularity. So... Although he's playing for Tony, like, oh, it was amazing and all of this. And mm, it, inside, he might have been just struggling with. I like the impression. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been struggling with, you know, um, the fact that she still, even in death, will become even more of a, a figure for him to contend with for the rest of his life. It, he's really interesting to me because it's the mix of like six different emotions combined with a clear political uh, agenda. The palace would still prefer to see this as a private funeral. What are your feelings on that? And again, again it's that him walking this tightrope of, I can't say the queen is wrong. I don't exactly know what Charles wants at this moment. I think that'll present us with difficulties. So do I. My mother... Queen, which is a bit of interesting redundancy comes from a generation not best equipped she grew up in the war ellipses are always so interesting in movies the moment where a character starts to say a thing but then changes their mind and says something else so the line my mother the queen comes from a jet generation not best equipped she grew up in the war there's a lot in that little ellipses when we see the beginnings of charles here trying to lure Tony to his side. Uh, it's a political move, what he's doing here, because as soon as he concedes that there might be problems, he jumps on it. Charles jumps on right. it. goes, yes, that's right. My mother this, my mother that. And right. you see him making his moves. Well, I'm not trying to you know, accuse yeah. him of it. I'm just saying in the context of the film. Well, this is what this movie is. I mean, and, and then again, he says, I think what we need, and then he changes we to what this country needs mm. is a more modern perspective if you follow. So he is changing from his personal needs, what he needs politically to framing it with what the country needs or trying to align himself with what the country needs. Balmoral is. And again, he doesn't finish that sentence. And I wonder what is Balmoral out of touch, disconnected, unemotional, you know, there's all this stuff. And Tony says, I think I understand. There's a very interesting historical parallel there that's not mentioned at any point in the movie or even alluded to, but that the Balmoral is line put into my head. And that's Queen Victoria's mourning after Albert died. Mm. After Albert died young, Queen Victoria went into mourning for years, mm. literal years. She went up to Balmoral and hid and Republican sentiment grew in London until eventually she had to come back down and be seen by the British public, which had enough of having an absent queen. Hmm. Now, this is much less of an issue because of airplanes and 
modern trains and, and cars and so on. And to Americans, the distance would seem laughable anyway. But Balmoral is quite far away. It's about as far away as you can get. It's right up there in the top of Scotland. Yeah. And it has, on more than one occasion, presented a, a problem for the perception of the British monarchy when it has gone there as its refuge. And so when he said that, I thought, oh, this is this is the second time this has happened in mm. you know 150 years. Mm. Well, again, it goes to the weird problem of celebrity of like sometimes you need to get alone. You know, you got to be somewhere else. And it makes sense to me to retreat to Balmoral. And I also understand why that wouldn't be looked on favorably, you know. Um, and now we have sort of this montage of some of the reactions around the world. We hear Clinton's reaction. We hear Mandela making a statement. And then, you know, these are the things we see on TV. Now we're doing going through her life and showing us things about her. And of course, we cut to those amazing, beautiful, romantic shots of the wedding. And she, you know, she really is stunning at the wedding. I mean, it's beautiful. My God. Yeah. I mean, absolutely stunning. And this is, of course, making the royals very uncomfortable then again more flowers and this is just gonna build and build she gave us so much why couldn't we have given her a little something and left her alone it just <laughs> hurts me so much never experienced anything like this i can't i think i'm i keep waiting to wake up like it's a bad dream Charlie, I wonder, do you have skepticism when you see the footage of people saying this stuff? Because I bet nine times out of 10, those people have stacks of newspapers of Diana. So they bought into the coverage and in a way are complicit, in my opinion, in a way are complicit because they bought all the newspapers. They read all the stuff, which encouraged newspapers to keep doing articles and photographs and chasing her and hounding her. So Am I being a bit cruel? No, or? I think you're being right. Yeah. I, I I agree with that. I, I also just, I'm afraid, I, I find it quite difficult to understand. Hmm. I understand why it was sad on a human level. She was a young woman. She had children and a family. And But again, the, <laughs> the, the level of grief and some of the way people spoke at the time i found perplexing and still do i i i just don't understand instinctively how people can say you know i'm in so much pain after three or four days of someone they didn't know hmm. passing away but it happened uh, th there's a yeah. there's a thing uh, two, two things. One is, I, I probably brought this up before on the podcast, which is this concept which comes from Ernst Becker, which is called a pseudopod. And mm. the basic idea is one putting one's identity into another thing so that, you know, the, yeah. you're a stockbroker and you're making tons of money and the market crashes and you jump out the window because you identified yourself with your portfolio. And when your portfolio was hurt, that hurt you. Or someone hurts you, hits your brand new Ferrari and you're like, you hit my car, you know. Um, and that I think with celebrity in particular, people frequently will put their own identity, their own hopes and dreams and romanticism and everything into that. And then she gets killed. And then that feels like a part of you died. Um, the other thing, again, I know I brought I brought this up on the show before was years ago, I saw this interview with George Clooney, which I think was with Jon Stewart. And there was some celebrity scandal going on. I don't know which one it was. And Jon Stewart says to Clooney, like, well, they, they're obsessed with you guys because they love you so much. And Clooney goes, no, no, they don't love us. They hate us. This isn't how you treat someone you love. 
What are they looking for? They're looking for when we mess up. They're waiting to see us do so. That's not how you treat someone you love. And, right. and, and I think both of those things are true simultaneously. I'll be honest with you. The hardest thing that I've experienced since going out on my own for the last two years on my own YouTube channel, doing my own shows, is the people who seem to relish catching you misstating a fact or misstating a name or having a controversial opinion about a situation. I recently put out a tweet about Andor where I was tired of seeing all of these uh, white-led Star Wars shows not bring people on of color to talk about it, talk about uh, Star Wars. And I thought, well, this is a thing that is led by a migrant. It's an immigrant story. I said, let's bring on Latinos and people of color who've experienced uh, being immigrants or whatever. Let's have those pundits on these shows and kind of open the door to more perspectives. That's all I was saying, but it was twisted to be something completely different where I was saying white people should never, should cannot uh, criticize and or cannot review and or. And I was like, how the hell could you possibly extrapolate that from what I said? So I had to kind of take the tweet down and reanalyze how I approached it. But because people can be quite powerful when they're just waiting for you to make that mistake. And my, and sometimes my YouTube comments, you can see, oh, Roka said this or Roka said that, or why did Roka think this? And then you look at their account and they have like two subscribers or five subscribers and you realize these people are just, some people, not all, right? Some people are just waiting for you because they hate that you do what you do and they don't do it or there's something wrong with their own lives and they're honestly just want to take it out on you. There's legitimate criticism, which is fair, but then there's criticism that comes from a place of anger and these are a majority of the toxicity that you speak about in celebrity and celeb- and i like i'm a z-list celebrity i'm not in any way shape or form close to anybody big but yeah I, I, i'm sure you've never experienced anything like that charlie <laughs> charlie yeah i'm sure charlie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it's amazing you know sometimes i will you mentioned having to take down a tweet i mean sometimes i will stare at a tweet mm. 10 minutes and think how could this possibly be twisted? How could I write this in a way and someone will find a way? Yes, it's crazy. <laughs> um, well, and John, if you're a Z-list celebrity, I'm like a, a Z minus 50 celebrity <laughs> and I've had this happen. So yeah. like it's, it, people are just waiting. They're so excited sometimes to find you out. You know, I think Clooney is a hundred percent right. And, and I think that's the toxicity of, celebrity and why you can't buy into any of that nonsense because it will absolutely turn on you you know so we're having the very uh i think efficient and practical meeting about the planning of the funeral um and the camera you know tracks down this long table to alistair campbell who says oh christ (laughs) and we cut to him showing back up at 10 downing street with tony and says flipping heck which i think is a great expression by the way i think what charlie brought up earlier i think is a great point here and and it comes through here there are bad people on both sides campbell's flippancy about this whole thing is uncomfortable to watch it is almost as uncomfortable as watching the aloofness from philip about this whole thing so both sides bear uh, to me a certain level of scrutiny in the movie and i think that's Stephen Frears does a great job of showing the, that both sides have issues with this whole situation and how they handled it and and went after each other for it. Well, I would say this, try to say this in a way that is as not political as possible. But <laughs> once you decide that the other side is evil, it's really real tough to walk back from that. You know, mm-hmm. 
And so then everything they do, you have to tear down, even if what they're doing is getting an ice cream with their kid. You know what I mean? Like, well, because they're evil, obviously. And that's kind of where Alistair is. You think the royals are nutters? You should meet their flunkies. Two and a half hours on whether she should be carried in a hearse or a gun carriage. By the way, I've totally been at these meetings. Maybe not that meeting, (laughs) but a meeting where you're just like, what the hell just happened for the last two hours? And then he contrasts that with the press coverage that Tony Blair is getting, which he's getting, everyone loves him for for how he's handling it. So they come to their senses. Is it going to be a public funeral? Yeah, Saturday. It's a whopper. (laughs) The Abbey, the works. Great. Has anyone told the Queen yet? I don't know. No doubt some flunky will be dispatched, groveling on all fours. Yeah, this is that stuff. There's no need for the extra bitter, but it's there from Campbell. There is now general agreement, ma'am, that a public funeral would be more appropriate. And you see the reaction going around the room. And you could tell Robin knows this is not going to go down well. He is like trying to soften the blow. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Every once in a while I've written this, you know, you write it, sometimes you write a little stage direction to an actor. And and if I were writing the stage direction for where we're, the way Helen Mirren says this next line, it would be thin. I see. It is so... It is so tight. It's it's great. And they ask, And what form will this funeral take? And he says, and again, this is the, I'm awkwardly trying to say a thing that I know nobody is going to like. At the moment, they're suggesting, and of course, these are early days, basing it on Tay Bridge. And there's a reaction going around the room. And of course, I had no idea that all the royal funerals had bridge um, code names. Mm. Apparently, Queen Elizabeth's was London Bridge, mm. which makes sense. Tay Bridge? What? Tay Bridge is the code name for my funeral. Could you imagine if someone you genuinely didn't like stole your funeral? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that sucks. Yeah. Um, and, and they say, and this is funny too to me, because they say, It's the only one which has been rehearsed. The only one that could be put together in time which means you're so old <laughs> that we figure your funeral is next so we've been rehearsing it <laughs> is also weird i supervise those plans myself and they go basically yeah we're going to use the plans but it's going to be real different instead of 400 soldiers it's going to be 400 representatives of their charities and instead of heads of states and the crown heads of europe the guests will include actors fashion designers and other celebrities celebrities which, by the way, my understanding is that uh, the Queen Mother loved Elton John and that he played for her, had like private concerts for her. And sure. like that, this reaction maybe isn't quite exactly what you uh, think. Mm. And then he starts to go and then realizes there's one more thing. Uh, and the, the flowers. What flowers? Just the fact that she would say, what flowers? When we've been watching this sea of flowers build outside Buckingham Palace, yeah. shows a bit of a disconnect. At the moment, they're blocking the path through the main gate and will make things difficult for the changing of the guard. Oh, well, fine, then just move them away. And again, Charlie, this goes to your point of she's right because nothing should interfere with the changing of the guards. Mm-hmm. That's just correct. Actually, the Lord Chamberlain was wondering whether we shouldn't leave the flowers and send the guards through the north gate. Helen Mirren's ability to process silently and watch you see the wheels turn as she thinks is so good. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yes, uh, yes, quite right. So we have gone from 
the queen wanting to formally control how things have, are supposed to go to now her essentially being forced to sanction a celebration of this person that really tore up her family. Yeah. Yeah. And at this moment, I think it's a good place to end part one of our exploration of Stephen Freer's The Queen. As always, we'd love to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews. You can follow us on Twitter at Cine underscore files, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And if you want to support the show, you can do it at patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. And if you want to follow me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, where could they find you? Oh, you can always uh, find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, uh, where the nation is back, my show that I do every week on Tuesday nights live talking about whatever's uh, bugging me in my life or whatever I want to celebrate that happens there. My also, uh, please don't remember, don't forget about my other podcasts, the, uh, Top 10, uh, The Geek Buddies, uh, The Hot Mic, and Strong Style. And Charlie, I cannot begin to tell you how great it's been having you on this show. Yeah. No, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. I'm already halfway through the movie. So. <laughs> I know. There's just, okay. well, this is, it's when, when John and I started The Cinephiles, our episodes were about an hour long. Yeah. And then they became two hours long, and then they became two hours long, and then they became two parters, and then occasionally three and four parters. Mm-hmm. It's just gotten longer and longer. So, this is sort of well. I'm I'm that was a guest on a seven hour episode of Political Beats. Wow, uh, the Beatles. So I I know the feeling. I know the the instinct. <laughs> so so I haven't listened to it yet, but it, it's not a joke. John and I uh, have talked about doing a Beatles podcast for years now. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we're yeah. both such huge huge fans. Um, I don't know another show. That's what I need to do. But yeah, Yeah, you need another. (laughs) Um, well, thank you so much. If people wanted to reach you or listen to you or read your work, how would they go about doing that? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Charles C W cook. And if you just Google Charles C W cook on the first page, you'll find all the useful links to the things I'm doing. And on the second page, you'll find all of the criticisms of me that are responses to the things on the first page. So pick your poison. Well, I think there's probably some people in our audience, which will do one and some other people in the audience that might do the other. Uh, but I think that is it for this week. We will be back next week to conclude our exploration of the queen right here on the cinephiles. Mm-hmm.